Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and literal Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, about to sneeze. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. Almost there. <sighs> oh, it has been an allergy season for the ages. Ugh. <sighs> like we're a month into this allergy season and uh it just doesn't end i mean i took a pill this morning i also took something for my allergies rim shot that's a good joke um yeah i've just been you know sneezing and i i'm finding like uh weird uh dermatitis bumps on my body you know from contact with nature i'm not allowed to touch nature when i do i break out it really doesn't matter what kind of nature Anything in the natural world, if I touch it, I get a rash. Um, you know, could be anything. Maybe I'm exact. Maybe I'm slightly exaggerating, but I obviously touch something because I got little bumps on me, little itchy bumps, and uh, that isn't necessarily. I mean, that is an allergic reaction, but that's a different kind of allergy from the allergies I'm currently experiencing and will no doubtedly experience again during the course of this podcast as I erupt into another volcanic sneeze. Uh, Please ignore any sniffles that you may hear during the course of this podcast, but nature can be a brutal mistress. We were talking about nature last time in a much more gentle context, you know, just how nature reflects our own eye meaning like whatever we bring to the table, nature will show us right back. Whatever our experience is, nature will mirror. It's not that the natural world is doing anything in particular, but we're finding in the natural world that which we are experiencing internally. So the fact that I'm sneezing and rebelling against nature, I don't know what that says. 
about me right now, because I don't feel particularly rebellious. If anything, I feel a little sleepy. It's early here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, uh, around 9.30 in the a.m. I usually record somewhat later in the day. I'm more of a p.m. recorder. You know, occasionally, yes, I will bring my steaming mug of English breakfast tea in here, but oftentimes that English breakfast tea is being consumed not at the breakfast hour. Although, let's be honest, it's always breakfast somewhere. Just sort of sipping my tea in the p.m. for a little bit of uh, afternoon caffeine. This morning, or the last several mornings, however, I have abstained from tea altogether. As the weather warms, I find myself not craving hot liquids. That is normal, I imagine. And I'm certainly not going to make homemade iced tea. What am I? A savage? No. If you prepare iced tea for me, I will drink it. I will request it when I'm out. Am I going to make my own? Come on! What do you think this is? Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory? Where I'm just conjuring iced tea up? I'm not that negligent. Nor am I that creative. Nor do I feel like brewing some tea and then waiting for it to get cold. That's just not who I am. I don't have that kind of patience. I'm feeling uh, phlegmatic. Maybe you hear it in my tone. I mean, it goes along with the sleepiness. It goes along with the, uh, the actual phlegm that I am currently brewing in lieu of tea. Last time on the podcast, Victor Frankenstein was singing the praises of Clerval, his devoted friend, and how great Clerval was. And, you know, he was, uh, you know, basically praising him to high heavens. Okay, and he and he wrote and he recited this poem from Wordsworth, Tintern Abbey, and then we stopped, right? But then, as I pick it up again today, here in Volume Three, Chapter One, the very next sentence after where I stopped indicates some sort of tragedy because he's you know he's singing the praises of Clerval, and then he says, "And where does he now exist?" Meaning Clerval is this gentle and lovely being lost forever. Has this mind so replete with ideas, imaginations, fanciful and magnificent, which formed a world whose existence depended on the life of its creator? Has this mind perished? Does it now only exist in my memory? No, it is not thus. Your form so divinely wrought and beaming with beauty has decayed, but your spirit still visits and consoles your unhappy friend. So Clerval's dead? I mean, I guess that's what he's saying. You know, he has this happy memory of Clerval floating down the Rhine in their bathtub, you know, looking around saying, yo, ho, ho, you know, just, you know, being pirates and looking out and saying, this is the greatest day of our lives. But it was just a memory. You know, now he's dead. Um, And then he continues, pardon this gush of sorrow. These ineffectual words are but a slight tribute to the unexampled worth of Henry, but they soothe my heart, overflowing with the anguish which his remembrance creates. I will proceed with my tale. Is this this new information to us that Clerval dies? Because I don't remember, I don't recall ever hearing that Clerval dies before this. We know Elizabeth dies. We know poor William dies. We know poor Justine dies. But this is the first time hearing that poor Clerval dies. Oh, poor Clerval. 
Was it at the hand of the big buddy? We don't know. You know, as we journey towards merry old England and sail towards the last, oh, I don't know, quarter, fifth of the book, we don't know what happens to Clerval. But now we've got another death to account for. Tragic, really. Really just tragic. I mean, do I give a shit about Clerval? Not really. Was it, it must have been nice back then in, I, I guess, pre-20th century when guys could just love other guys. I've talked about this before, you know, just love other guys without it being a thing. You know, he, he loves Henry. You know, you could even say he's in love with Henry, but not in the way that we think about it today. He just loves his friend, you know? I love a lot of my friends, but it's just weird, you know, to gush over them in that way. To talk about their beauty, the beauty of David Wayne. I mean, what the fuck? Beyond Cologne, we descended to the plains of Holland, and we resolved to post the remainder of our way, for the wind was contrary, and the stream of the river was too gentle to aid us. So I guess posting means uh, rowing. Our journey here lost the interest arising from beautiful scenery, but we arrived in a few days at Rotterdam, whence we proceeded by sea to England. It was, a, it was on a clear morning, in the latter days of September, that I first saw the white cliffs of Britain. The banks of the Thames presented a new scene. They were flat, but fertile, and almost every town was marked by the remembrance of some story. We saw Tilbury Fort and remembered the Spanish Armada, Gravesend, Woolwich, and Greenwich, places which I had heard of even in my country. At length we saw the numerous steeples of London, St. Paul's towering above all, and the tower famed in English history. End of chapter one. Well, we made it, guys. We made it to merry old England. And uh, the last image, of course, is the tower, which is a peculiar image because, at least in my mind, my American imaginings, the tower is a place of misery because you stick your enemies up in the tower. That's where, that's where enemies of the state go. You know, you try to foment a rebellion, you get sent to the tower. And chances are, once you get up to the tower, you're not getting out. You know, your head might come out, but you're not. So that feels like a dark foreboding to me, but maybe in Shelley's time, the tower meant something else, or at least it didn't have the same pure associations as it does for me right now. I don't know. But one feels a little stirring of patriotism in the heart, uh, British patriotism, as we arrive back at the White Cliffs of Britain, and she's shouting out these, you know, towns, which ones, Tilbury Fort, Gravesend, Woolwich, Greenwich, uh, you know, which even even Victor Frankenstein had heard of. I'll be honest, I haven't heard of any of them. So, you know, there, there might be a little bit of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, it's right on the tip of my tongue and it's driving me crazy already. Ugh, damn it. You know, this is what happens when you record early. This is what happens. You know, before, before, the, before the, the cock has even crowed, here I am, not even 10 o'clock in the morning, Recording for your entertainment, words are escaping my foggy brain. Might be the allergy medicine. Might be the age. My age, I mean. It might also be the, uh, the historic age. But 
it's just funny to me that Mary Shelley, who I don't think of as a particularly like, I mean, she's obviously British, and what do I know about Mary Shelley? But this whole tale has taken place out of her native land. Now she returns to it, not Victor Frankenstein's native land, but Shelley's own. And, uh, you know, she's already flying the colors, the Union Jack fluttering there in her prose. As she's saying, oh, we're home. Look at this. Look at all this great stuff. You like England, right? Everybody likes England, right? She's looking around. Percy, Bissy, Shelley, you like England, right? Lord Byron, everybody. We all like England. She's just taking it for granted. Everybody's going to be excited about Norwich. I don't give a shit about Norwich. I never heard of it. Chapter two. London was our present point of rest. We determined to remain several months in this wonderful and celebrated city. Clerval desired the intercourse of the men of genius and talent who flourished at this time, perv, she said intercourse, but this was with me a secondary object. I was principally occupied with the means of obtaining the information necessary for the completion of my promise and quickly availed myself of the letters of introduction that I had brought with me, addressed to the most distinguished natural philosopher. This is what I don't understand. Why does he need any help when he's the one who invented how to do this? He's the only one in human history, so far as we know, who has, you know, gone to the junkyard, taken scraps, and made them into Voltron. He's the only one who's done it. So why does he need help from the great natural philosophers of the time to do it again? Doesn't seem like he should. It's just, I think it's a bad story point. You know, maybe he can do it better. Maybe he can, maybe they've developed something so, you know, he doesn't have to make an eight foot tall buddy. He can make a seven foot tall buddy. I don't know. But there's no logic here. There's no rhyme or reason why he needed to go to England other than to dilly dally. And he kind of admitted that before, but now he's saying, oh no, I really needed to go see the natural philosopher so that I could complete this project. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You got a whole notebook that tells you exactly how to do it. Plus, idiot, you've already done it. If this journey had taken place during my days of study and happiness, it would have afforded me inexpressible pleasure. But a blight had come. We know about the blight over your existence. A blight had come over my existence. We know. And I only visited these people for the sake of the information they might give me on the subject in which my interest was so terribly profound. Company was irksome to me. When alone, I could fill my mind with the sights of heaven and earth. The voice of Henry soothed me, and I could thus cheat myself into a transitory peace. But busy, uninteresting, joyous faces brought back despair to my heart. I saw an insurmountable barrier placed between me and my fellow man. This barrier was sealed with the blood of William and Justine. I call foul. I call foul. We are not allowed to refer to William and Justine without the word poor affixed to their names. And so I'm going to rewrite this. This barrier was sealed with the blood of poor William and poor Justine. And to reflect on the events connected with those names filled my soul with anguish. All right. uh, Yeah, we're we're all filled with anguish, Victor. We got it. You know, fine. I'm filled with sneezes. You don't hear me bitching and moaning about it, except for this first several moments of this podcast. All right. I'm going to take just a quick uh, break to air out my sinuses, and we will then return here on Obscure.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on Obscure, I wish I had a neti pot. You know, I would have done a neti pot. You know, that, that thing that you stick up your nose and then somehow you create a waterfall out of your nose. Water goes in, it goes out. I don't know. It always looked profoundly uncomfortable to me, which is why I actually don't have a neti pot and will never get one. But it seems like it might come in handy right now when my head is stuffed with pollen. Back to the book. So, you know, his soul is filled with anguish, blah, blah, blah. His soul is always filled with anguish. God. You know, it's like a 17-year-old wrote this. Oh, wait. But in Clerval, I saw the image of my former self. He was inquisitive and anxious to gain experience and instruction. The difference of manners which he observed was to him an inexhaustible source of instruction and amusement. He was also pursuing an object he had long had in view. His design was to visit India in the belief that he had in his knowledge of its various languages and in the views he had taken of its society, the means of materially assisting the progress of European colonization and trade. Oh, oh, that's not, that's not where it's supposed to, that's not, Clerval, that's not what you're supposed to be thinking about. You're not supposed to be thinking of colonizing India. Come on. Uh, here in the 21st century, we, we look down on that with a very, very severe frown. That's just not what, what we're, trade, okay. You know, you want to trade a little, fine. Colonize, you know, we're not thrilled with that at this point in our world history. I'll tell you who doesn't want to be colonized, the Indians. So yeah, go there, sure. You know, trade, absolutely. Speak the language, by all means. Colonize, maybe not. In Britain only could he further the execution of his plan. He was forever busy, and the only check to his enjoyments was my sorrowful and dejected mind. I tried to conceal this as much as possible, that I might not debar him from the pleasures natural to one who was entering on a new scene of life, undisturbed by any care or bitter recollection. 
I often refused to accompany him, alleging another engagement that I might remain alone. I now also began to collect the materials necessary for my new creation, and this was to me like the torture of single drops of water continually falling on the head. Every thought that was devoted to it was in extreme anguish, and every word that I spoke in allusion to it caused my lips to quiver and my heart to palpitate. What materials is he gathering? Lady parts? Lady arms? Lady legs? Lady buttocks? What is he gathering? Is it just the sort of chemicals and uh, powders and such that he needs? Or is it the actual parts, the cadaver parts? I suspect it's more the chemicals and such. Uh, because, you know, you can't really store body parts in your apartment. You know, Jeffrey Dahmer learned that lesson. You know, eventually somebody's going to find them. It's just, a, it's just a tough thing to do. And to our knowledge, he hasn't rented out some secret laboratory or, or anything of the sort. So I think he's just sort of getting bags of this and, uh, you know, beakers of that. After passing some months in London, we received a letter from a person in Scotland who had formerly been our visitor at Geneva. He mentioned the beauties of his native country and asked us if those were not sufficient allurements to induce us to prolong our journey as far north as Perth, where he resided. Clerval eagerly desired to accept this invitation and all I, although I abhorred society, wished to view again mountains and streams and all the wondrous works with which nature adorns her chosen dwelling places. We had arrived in England at the beginning of October, and it was now February. We accordingly determined to commence our journey towards the north at the expiration of another month. In this expedition, we did not intend to follow the great road to Edinburgh, but to visit Windsor, Oxford, Matlock, and the Cumberland Lakes, resolving to arrive at the completion of this tour about the end of July. I packed up my chemical instruments and the materials I had collected, so my theory is confirmed, resolving to finish my labors in some obscure nook in the northern highlands of Scotland. Um, All right. So, you know, they're sort of dawdling there in... England and now points north, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna go up to to Scotland and, uh, I, you know, I don't know what they're gonna do up there other than look at mountains. And, he, you know, I guess he's gonna finish up in Scotland, uh, in Edinburgh, uh, and, and that'll be fine. So, did he ever meet with the natural philosopher? He doesn't even say. Like, the whole reason he went was to talk to the natural philosopher who was forever unnamed. And he goes there, and then uh, we don't know anything about whether they even got together for tea and crumpets and such. We don't know. You know, this, this. anytime he gets to the creation of the buddy, or she gets to the creation of the buddy, it all gets very muddled, which we understand. But it seems like the whole point was to go talk to these people. He didn't talk to the people, or if he did, we didn't hear anything about it. It didn't forward the story. Them being in England has not forwarded the story in any way, shape, or form. Now they're going to Scotland. Okay. We quitted London on the 27th of March, 
and remained a few days at Windsor, rambling in its beautiful forest. I don't care. This was a new scene to us mountaineers. The majestic oaks, the quantity of game, and the herds of stately deer were all novelties to us. From thence we proceeded to Oxford. I don't care. Although, I do care about Oxford in so much as it is the uh, the, the setting of Jude the Obscure. So let's listen to a little description of Oxford from a different point of view. As we entered this city, our minds were filled with the remembrance of the events that had transacted more than a century and a half before. It was here that Charles I had collected his forces. This city had remained faithful to him after the whole nation had forsaken his cause to join the standard of parliament and liberty. The memory of that unfortunate king and his companions, the amiable Falkland, the insolent Goring footnote. I don't know why we're taking this detour into British history. Um, the British, the English rebellion, revolution, I don't know what it's called, but Charles I had, you know, made a mess of things and... Now we have to find out who Goring was. Uh, the insolent Goring. Okay, so Lucius Carey, second Viscount Falkland, a humanist and scholar who served as Secretary of State to Charles I in the last two years of his life. Quote, his claim to our reverence lies in the fact that his mind was as thoroughly saturated as Milton's was with the love of freedom as the nurse of high thought and high morality, while his gentle nature made him incapable of the harsh austerities of Milton's combative career. The character of Falkland in William Godwin's Caleb, William, uh, Caleb Williams, so remember this book is dedicated to Godwin, is partly modeled on Lucius Carey. Lord George Goring, astute courtier and general who initially alternated his support between king and parliament in the civil war before siding with the cavaliers quote the disputes between king and parliament afforded an opportunity which he resolved to use for his own advancement of all his qualifications dissimulation was his masterpiece okay so i don't know why we had to spend any time with that footnote or discussing in the novel Goring and Falkland, what little I know about the English Civil War is that Charles I came to the throne. There was some problems with money. He and Parliament, Parliament wouldn't raise taxes. Charles I was broke. Parliament was the only people who could raise taxes. Charles I wanted to bring Scotland under the state religion. Scotland was like, fuck you. And then he was like, all right, well, I'm going to go to war with you. And it was a whole problem. And then eventually there was a revolution and whatever. So the amiable Falkland, the insolent Goring, his queen and son, gave a peculiar interest to every part of the city, which they might be supposed to have inhabited. The spirit of elder days found a dwelling here, and we delighted to trace its footsteps. If these feelings had not found an imaginary gratification, the appearance of the city had yet in itself sufficient beauty to obtain our admiration. The colleges are ancient and picturesque. This is the part that I'm interested in. The streets are almost magnificent, and the lovely Isis, which flows beside it through meadows of exquisite verdure, is spread forth 
into a placid expanse of waters which reflects its majestic assemblage of towers and spires and domes embossed among aged trees. So I'm interested in this because we're getting a different perspective on Oxford, or let's call it Christchurch, whichever we want. And Jude Fawley had himself, I think, different opinions of that city uh, as he aged when he first arrived in Christchurch slash Oxford, he was overcome by its beauty and the colleges and the ornate architecture, the stately buildings, everything in it, all the stone, let's say, was both an invitation to him and a rejection of him. And I think the city began to feel somewhat oppressive the longer he stayed because he couldn't he couldn't get past those stone walls, even though it was he himself who had created them. And there's some irony in that. I mean, he metaphorically created them. You know, he worked with stone. And now we've got these two outsiders coming into Oxford and looking at it and feeling a sense of wonder and, and overwhelmed by its beauty, feeling the weight of its history. Jude Foley also felt the weight of its history, but in a different way, because it was that history that prevented him from gaining the education that he wanted. It was that history, those traditions, those rites, which barred his entry. So two very different perspectives on the same place, although I think everybody agrees it's pretty. I enjoyed this scene, and yet my enjoyment was embittered both by the memory of the past and the anticipation of the future. I was formed for peaceful happiness. What? No, you weren't. Everything about you. There's never been peaceful happiness in you, Victor Frankenstein. You're the moody kid. Henry Clerval was built for peaceful happiness. Elizabeth was built for peaceful happiness. You were built for playing good Charlotte songs in your bedroom with the door closed. That's what you were built for and not much else. During my youthful days, discontent never visited my mind. And if I was ever overcome by ennui, which you were, the sight of what is beautiful in nature or the study of what is excellent and sublime in the productions of man could always interest my heart and communicate elasticity to my spirits. But I am a blasted tree. The bolt, there's a blasted tree in Jude the Obscure too, I think. The bolt has entered my soul. And I felt then that I should survive to exhibit what I shall soon cease to be. A miserable spectacle of wrecked humanity, pitiable to others and intolerable to myself. I mean, if ever there was a sentence written by a 17-year-old, it is that one. Intolerable. Let me just reread it because that is just perfect. You know, having the fact that I live with a 17 year old, now 18 year old, believe me, I know, I know what these teenage girls are like. I should survive to exhibit what I shall soon cease to be a miserable spectacle of wrecked humanity, pitiable to others and intolerable to myself. Does that not describe the teenage condition in its entirety? I'll end it there. You know, the fact that Victor Frankenstein seems to think that he was built for peaceful happiness. I mean, there's nothing in his nature to suggest that. 
Nothing that we've read to this point suggests there is anything peaceful or happy about Victor Frankenstein. Maybe not even about Mary Shelley. Hard to say. I don't know what Mary Shelley's character was like, but she seems to observe depression and melancholy quite well. She seems to understand its nooks and crannies. She seems to burrow into it with some familiarity. Whereas uh, characters like Henry Clerval and Elizabeth uh, seem a little bit apart, right? There was an admiration for people who were built for peaceful happiness. There was a longing for those people, but there does not seem to be an intimacy with them. Walton too, the erstwhile narrator of this tale, ultimately, uh, also does not seem built for peaceful happiness. You remember Walton uh, spent his childhood, you know, dreaming of adventure and going off and leaving, doing amazing things. If you're peacefully happy, you don't, you know, you you just think to yourself, oh, I'm just going to hang out here. This is nice. Maybe I'll go down to the malt shop for a minute, get myself a chocolate. But you don't think I'm going to go to the North Pole, you know, harness magnetism. You know, you just don't think that. Whereas his sister. Mrs. Savile, there in London, you know, she, maybe she, she seems content with what she's doing, hanging out in society. So I'm just saying, I don't think Mary Shelley knows from peaceful happiness. I don't know a 17-year-old who does or, or, or anybody, you know, even into your early 20s. You know, and I guess the book was probably finished when she was in her early 20s. But um, yeah, it just, it's, just, it's just not, not common. More common to be a little fretful, I think, at that age. And, you know, pretty common to be fretful in any age. I, too, was not built for peaceful happiness, though I long for it. I was built for uh, dermatitis, contact dermatitis, ennui, and doubt. Even in saying it, I sound doubtful. So let's go with that. Doubt. So we'll close. I mean, look, we had a terrific time. You know, the sneezes seem to have cleared up. They seem to have abated. Maybe the allergy medicine finally kicked in. I don't know. I'm still feeling sleepy, though. That's not from the allergy medicine. I am always sleepy, which is a symptom of depression, as we all know. Not that I feel particularly depressed, but who's to say I'm not? I'm not. Um, yeah. Well, we'll we'll wrap it up. We'll... Uh, We'll find out what's going on with Clerval, how he, or poor Clerval, as he meets his end. We're heading towards Scotland now after a pit stop in England. We're just hitting all, all the northern climbs, you know, all the northern climbs. We're, we're in Western Europe and parts above. We're just hitting them all. We're on a grand tour of cold places. The Sheep Buddy is coming along, not in assemblage, but at least in, uh, in the planning stages, and we are just waiting for the conclusion. We're just we're waiting to re-meet the big buddy. Maybe it'll be in the highlands of Scotland. Maybe it'll be somewhere else. We're waiting for the ultimate showdown. We're waiting for the she buddy to show up or not. We're waiting for um, the escape to the North Pole. We're waiting for Elizabeth to die. Like there's a lot left to happen as we near the end of this book. We have maybe 50 pages left or so. So, you know, the action should get fast and furious as we continue along. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm seeing the end 
of the book approaching. I'm kind of excited about it. Light is growing from the end of the tunnel. And, uh, you know, thoughts are already turning to what's next. I don't know. Sorry, I'm stretching. We begin with a sneeze. We end with a stretch. And we will get together next time on another scenic episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein was produced by myself, Michael Ian Black, Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, and Mary Shimkin. It was recorded in the wilds of Connecticut at the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. Theme music by Craig Wedrin. If you would like to support this podcast, please join us at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. This is a podcast that does not receive any outside funding other than the funding that you yourself give it. So if you would like to support it, please do patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.